0: All right, today we're going to talk about the first half of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, we're jumping ahead about 400 years from Beowulf. Uh, the We know that uh, Gawain and the Green Knight was written in the late 1300s, maybe around 1400, actually. Uh, the author is unknown, just like the author of Beowulf. We do know that he came from uh, northern England. Uh... And there's only one copy of this manuscript that survives, again, just like Beowulf. Uh, It just happened to survive and was not published uh, like Beowulf until the 19th century. So the subsequent authors that will read weren't aware of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It was rediscovered in the 19th century, but has become a a, a classic and a central part of the, the canon of English literature ever since. The genre of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a romance. Uh, Now, that does not mean a a romantic novel with Fabio on the cover or something. A romance was, uh, well, the the simplest definition of a romance is that it's a fairy tale for grown-ups. So it's a fairy tale because it has... All of the fairy tale elements of magical uh, creatures and, and knights and adventures and all of that. Uh, but it's for grown ups because it's not a children's story. It's got grown up adult themes. And you can see that that's very much what uh, Sir Galvin and the Green Knight is. It's very, got lots of magical elements in it, but it's also got very adult themes that it's dealing with. The poem was written during what they called the alliterative revival. Uh, As you know, Beowulf was written in an alliterative verse form, and that verse form became popular again uh, in the the late 1300s. And this was an example of that. though, And it has the same form. It's a four-beat line uh, with uh, uh, alliteration uh, linking the beats together, just like in Beowulf. But in addition to that, the the Gawain poet uses a, a... He marries the alliterative verse with rhymed verse. So he has these stanzas that don't have a set number of lines, but they end with what's called a bob and a wheel. And the bob is just a two-syllable line, and then the wheel is... Four three syllable lines, and they rhyme a b a b a so each you'll see that each uh, uh, stanza finishes off with that what they call the little bob and wheel uh, so that was a little extra flourish that he added to the alliterative verse and we're reading the poem not in the uh, middle English the it's no longer old English like Beowulf but uh, middle English the language had changed it was becoming. Closer to our modern English, but not quite there yet. Uh, but the the dialect that the Gowan poet wrote in uh, is not the one that became Standard English. That would be the London dialect that Chaucer wrote in and we'll actually read Chaucer in his original Middle English but the Gowan poet's a little bit uh, more difficult. So we're reading a translation uh, and the one in the current one in the uh, Norton Anthology is by Simon Armitage. All right. Let's uh, look at the beginning of the poem. It starts off, they talk about, they link this the story of King Arthur, and automatically that's a, a kind of a fairy tale setting, but they link that back to the story of, of Troy. So they're going all the way back to ancient Greece and Aeneas, who's the hero of Rome, he founds Rome, and then Felix Brutus, uh, who comes and founds Britain. So you've got a direct line all the way back to the mythic past of the, uh, of the uh, Greeks and Romans. But when we get to Arthur, we get uh, round line uh, 37. It was Christmas at Camelot, King Arthur's court, where the great and the good of the land had gathered and all the righteous lords and of the ranks of the round table. So this is, the, again, the kind of a fairy tale setting. King Arthur, the knights of the round table, and it's Christmas. This was a, it was then as now. That was a holiday time and this uh, feasting lasted a full fortnight and one day with more food and drink than a fellow could dream of the hubbub of their humor was heavy to bear pleasant dialogue by day and dancing after dusk so they're having a grand old time and from the Christmas, we get to the, the New Year's celebration, and Guinevere uh, is there, and all the knights are there. And notice the way it describes Arthur around line 85. He said, But Arthur would not eat until all were served. He brimmed with almost being almost boyish in his love of life. And what he liked the least was to sit still, watching the seasons slip by. So notice that it describes Arthur quite literally as boyish. He has this boyish enthusiasm. It's almost like he has ADD. He can't can't sit still while all this is happening. Um, as his blood was busy and he buzzed with thoughts and the matter which played on his mind at that moment was his pledge to take no portion from his plate on such a special day until a story was told some far-fetched yarn or outrageous fable the tallest of tales yet one ringing with truth like the action-packed epics of men at arms so you know something you want something you know something tale-worthy, something exciting to happen before he uh, he sits down uh, and you say it's into that uh, stanza line 102 um, the feast and festival when the fellowship would meet with uh, features proud and fine he stood there tall and straight a king at Christmas time amid great merriment now in the original um, middle English, One of the adjectives it uses to describe him standing there uh, tall and straight, the adjective the original uses is stiff, which means standing up straight, but it also has, you know, kind of slightly negative connotations. He's a little bit too stiff. He's a little bit too, um, uh, you know, not not going with the flow. Um, And so Arthur is in some ways kind of immature, we see him here. And we've got Sir Gawain and Guinevere, his, uh, King Arthur's queen. Now, Gawain was famously a ladies' man. That becomes very important in this story, as, as you know. Um, but the dinner is up interrupted. This New Year's celebration is interrupted around 133. So because another sound, a new sound, suddenly drew near which might signal the king's to uh, the king to sample his supper. For barely had the horns finished blowing their breath, and with starters just sp- uh, spooned to the seated guests, a fearful form appeared, framed in the door. All right. So this is oh well maybe Arthur he wouldn't start until some you know some great tale was told. And that, well maybe he can start now because a great tale is starting. And then it starts this long description of the Green Knight. And I want to look at this in some detail and think about what kind of image it presents. It says, A fearful form, a mountain of a man immeasurably high, a hulk of a human from head to hips, so long and thick in his loins and his limbs, I should genuinely judge him to be half-giant. Or a most massive man, the mightiest of mortals. Right. So here we've got this imposing, gigantic. says half giant, not a full giant. I mean, he's he's kind of human scale. You think of him like, well, like uh, Hagrid in the Harry Potter stories. He's he's not a full giant, but he's a half giant. He's bigger than any human being around. So it describes This is almost, you know, an ogre-like figure. But then it says, "...but handsome, too, like any horseman with his horse. For despite the bulk and brawn of his body, his stomach and waist were slender and sleek. In fact, in all features, he was finely formed, it seemed." And this happens several times in this description. It gives kind of contradictory images of him. First of all, the images of him is as being, uh, you know, giant and imposing and dangerous. But then he also, he seems handsome. He's not just a big hunk of meat. He's got a kind of a slender waist and he's handsome and uh, it says that uh, the... Amazement seized their minds. No soul had ever seen a night of such a kind, entirely emerald green. So everything about him is green. It goes on. His gear, his garments, everything is green. But, you know, the the greenness of the night is interpreted in different ways. One thing it seems almost certainly to mean is a connection to the natural world the world of of grass and trees and plants. Um, But the very fact that he is all green is unnatural. So there's another kind of paradox or dichotomy in his description. And it says around line 167, all the details of his dress are difficult to describe, embroidered as it was with butterflies and birds, green beads emblazoned on a background of gold. So if he is, again, he's not this kind of uh, caveman figure. He's wearing these very intricately, beautifully appointed clothing. There's so many details he can't even describe them all. And even his horse has that kind of uh, detail. Look around line 185 says, so the mane of his mount was groomed to match, combed and knotted into curly cues, then tinseled with gold, tied and twisted green over gold, green over gold. The fetlocks were finished in the same fashion with bright green ribbon braided with beads, uh, all, as was the tail to its tippity tip. So his horse is, is kind of elaborately appointed as well. Um, and it says in the the bobbin wheel there of that stanza around line 200, a look of lightning flashed from somewhere in his soul. The force of that man's fist would be a thunderbolt. Yet he wore no helmet and no hauberk either. Uh, a hauberk is the uh, a chain mail that they would would wear. It says no armored apparel or plate was apparent, and he swung no sword nor sported any shield, but held in one hand a sprig of holly of all the evergreens, the greenest ever, and in the other hand held the mother of all axes. Now here again, we see this dichotomy. He's, you know, his, his fist would be a thunderbolt, but he doesn't look like he's dangerous. There's no armor, there's no sword, and he has a holly branch. That's the symbol of peace. But in his other hand, he has, as the translation says, the mother of all axes. Right? Uh, it says, from from stock to neck, uh, It's describing the, the handle of the axe, it says, from stock to neck, where it stopped with a knot, a lace was looped the length of the haft, trimmed with tassels and tails of string, fastened firmly in place, by forest green buttons so even the axe as soon as it describes the axe as this, this instrument of destruction it's also beautifully made it has these intricate little patterns in it so there's this constant dichotomy with him he's, he's big and imposing but he's also refined and beautiful and well crafted uh, he doesn't you know, kind of easily fit either category and of course, he comes in bellows. Who's the governor of this gaggle? Um, and it says they were all mute with amazement. What did it mean that a human and a horse could develop this hue? So again, they're they're trying to describe it or understand it. That it should grow to be grass green or greener still, like green enamel emboldened by bright gold. Some stood and stared, then stepped a little closer, drawn near. The night to know his next move. They'd seen some sights, but this was something special, a miracle or magic, or so they imagined. So, they, again, they don't know what to make of it. Now, again, the, in the original uh, Middle English text, the, the phrase that uh, Armitage translates miracle or magic is phantom or fairy. So a phantom, a spirit, or a fairy, an elf, a supernatural uh, being—they don't know quite what category to put him in. Is—is he, you know, a phantom? Wouldn't even be physical, but he seems to be physical. Is he? Is he uh, like a fairy? Is he a mythical creature? They don't know what to make of him. Um, And so he says he announces, line two sixty-three. Since courtesy, so it said, is championed here, I'm intrigued. And attracted to your door at this time, be assured by this Holland stem here in my hand that I mean no menace. I said, I've heard you're very polite and courteous here, and uh, you see I'm carrying the sign of peace. Um, And it says, if you're half as honorable as I've heard folks say, you'll gracefully grant me this game which I ask for by right. So he wants to play a, a, a game. Um, and notice he kind of insults the, the, the people there on line 180. And he says, uh, I'm spoiling for no scrap, I swear. Besides, the bodies on these benches are just bum-fluffed bairns. Or bum-fluffed bairns. The the, the Middle English is a beardless childer. Uh, bum-fluff is the, kind of the, the little almost beard growth that an adolescent boy gets. So he's saying, you're, you're, you're children, you're little boys, you're not real men. And the game that he proposes is, strike me one stroke and be struck in return. I shall give him as a gift this gigantic cleaver, and the axe shall be his to handle how he likes. I'll kneel, bear my neck, and take the first knock. So who has the gall, the gumption, the guts? So the game is, you take this axe, and you hit me with it, and then I get to hit you with it. Now, something's up here, right? Because, you know, if you hit him with the axe, isn't that going to kill him? And if it kills him, how could he hit you back? But nobody comes up. It says, you know, the court kept its counsel. They stay very quiet. They're not really participating in this. Um, And finally, Arthur steps up. He comes in around line uh, uh, 330. Um, Arthur grips the axe. But just as he's about to accept the challenge, Gawain steps up. By Guinefer Gawain, now to his king inclines, and says, I'd stake my claim. This moment must be mine. So here we've got, by the way, the pronunciation of, of Gawain and Gawain, it's pronounced often both ways. Uh, it, it's, it's the and a more Anglo-Saxon pronunciation would be Gawain, because that would allow it to alliterate. Uh, the more uh, Norman Frenchified uh, pronunciation would be Gawain, because that would allow it to rhyme. Um but usually I'll just say Gawain because I'm I'm being more Anglo-Saxon. Um, and notice that you know Gawain says very modestly why he's doing this. Line uh, uh, three fifty-five: I am the weakest of your warriors, feeblest of wit. Loss of my life would be grieved the least. Were I not your nephew, my life would mean nothing. So. Uh, Gawain is Arthur's nephew. He's the son of King Arthur of one of King Arthur's sisters, and the uh, uh, the, the sister son was a, a a very highly honored place in in medieval and feudal societies. Uh, if you remember, Beowulf was the nephew to Halak. Uh, uh, it wasn't his son; he was his nephew. Um, now Arthur gives him some. Advice gives Gowan some advice. He says, line 373, Take care, young cousin, to catch him cleanly. Use full-blooded force. Then you needn't fear the blow which he threatens to trade in return. So he's saying, you know, okay, I think I got this. I figured this out. If you just knock his head completely off, then he, no matter how big and strong he is, he won't be able to hit you back. Um, so... He says that, you know, the the Green Knight has said that you've got to come and uh, a year from now, you've got to come and uh, uh, take my axe blow to your neck. And, you know, Gawain asks him, well, where do you live? What's your name? And the Green Knight says, oh, don't worry about that. You know, I'll I'll tell you after you chop my head off. Um, And notice throughout this, the Green Knight is – He's kind of he's in, kind of making fun of the the knights. He's calling them you know beardless boys. Um, he, he's, he seems to be almost not taking it very seriously. He has a very kind of light jovial tone to this whole thing. Now, Gawain comes up. He takes the big axe. Around line uh, four twenty five, the cleanness of the strike cleaved the spinal cord. and and parted the fat and the flesh so far that the bright steel blade took a bite from the floor. The handsome head tumbles onto the earth, and the king's men kick it as it clatters past. Blood gutters brightly against the green gown, yet the man doesn't shudder or stagger or sink, but trudges toward them on those tree-trunk legs and rummages around, reaches at their feet, and cops hold of his head and hoists it high and strides to his steed, snatches the bridle, steps into the stirrup and swings into the saddle, still gripping his head by a handful of hair. Then he settles himself in his seat with the ease of a man unmarked, never mind being minus his head. So here's the, here's the, the trick to this game. Um, You cut off the Green Knight's head, it doesn't kill him. That's another way he's kind of linked to the forces of nature. You know, if you prune a a tree, uh, it doesn't kill it. It just grows back. Uh, So he comes back and holding his head and, you know, speaks from his head and says, now he says where to go. You have to go to the Green Chapel, um, where, he says, you'll rightfully receive the justice you are due just as January dawns. Men know my name as the Green Chapel Knight, and even a fool couldn't fail to find me. So that's kind of all the information that he gives. So he rides out, and notice Arthur, line 470, he tries to kind of, of smooth things over. He says to, to his queen, line 470, Dear lady, don 't be daunted by this deed today it 's in keeping with such strangeness uh, that such strangeness should occur at Christmas between sessions of banter and seasonal song amid the lively pastimes of ladies and lords and at l- least i 'm allowed to at last to, uh, I'm, <laughs> at least i 'm allowed to eat at last, having witnessed such wonder wouldn 't you say? Now, notice he's making a little joke of it. He was saying, I'm not going to eat until we hear a a tale of wonder. Well, they've seen a tale of wonder. Oh, I guess I can eat now. Uh, Then he glanced at Gawain and was grateful, graceful with his words. Now, hang up your axe. One hack is enough. So it dangled from the drape behind the dais. So the men who saw it would be mesmerized and amazed. Um, So Arthur is, you know, just trying to kind of get control of the court, but... Um, everybody knows that there's this doom now hanging over Gawain. All right. Now, the second part of the poem, the fit two fit is just a word for a section, a part of a poem. Uh, it starts off with this kind of beautiful little uh, s- section, around line three, starts around line uh, 500, uh, about the progression of the seasons season by season goes from winter to spring where the flowers unfurl um, then summer comes in season with its subtle airs autumn arrives to harden the, har- harden the harvest um, and it ends then all which had risen over ripens and rots and yesterday on yesterday the year dies away and winter returns as is the way of the world through time, so that's a very nice way of jumping a year ahead. But it, it, it puts it in terms of the progression of the seasons, the kind of natural cycle. And we're back to the uh, back to winter. We're back to All Saints Day, November first, uh, the day after Halloween. They feasted in the name of their noble knight, with the with the revels and riches of the Round Table. The lords of that hall and their loving ladies were sad and concerned. For the st- sake of their night, but nevertheless they made light of his load. Those joyless at his plight made joy- jokes and rejoiced. So here they all know he's kind of doomed, but they're not. They're they're taking on a light-hearted tone. They're not going to show it. They're going to, uh, you know, uh, stiff upper lip. But not even that. They're 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 joking. They're making light of it. Now we get a long description of of. Gawain's armor this, this poem is actually full of these kind of very vivid descriptions the description of the Green Knight's armor now the description of Gawain's armor it, it takes a real delight in the in talking about the you know beautiful artifacts and clothing and buildings and all of that but I want to focus on one thing it focuses on and spends a lot of time on is the emblem on Gawain's shield this is line 620 it's uh, the the shining scarlet shield with its pentangle painted in pure gold. So a pentangle is a five-sided star. Uh, that you, can, you can and it makes the point you can draw that without ever lifting your pencil. Um, that's what it is. It's the endless the endless knot. Um, and he says he's going to tell you why this is appropriate. And. It's appropriate because of the the symbolism of five. There are five fives that uh, Gawain embodies. This starts around line 640. First, he was deemed flawless in his five senses. And secondly, his five fingers were never at fault. So the first two fives are physical. His five senses, his his sight, hearing, smell, taste, all that. His five fingers, that's the, the strength of his hands, of his body, And then, thirdly, his faith was founded in the five wounds Christ received on the cross. So those are the five wounds of Christ on the cross, one in each hand, one in each foot, and a spear through the side, the five wounds. Uh, uh, Fourthly, if the soldier struggled in skirmish, one thought pulled him through, above all other things. At the fortitude he found in the five joys which Mary had conceived in her son, our Savior. For precisely that reason, the princely writer had the shape of her image inside his shield. So by catching her eye, his courage would not crack. So these next two are spiritual virtues, the five five wounds of Christ, the five joys of Mary. And he has a picture of Mary inside his shield. This was a tradition in, in uh, chivalric romances that if, if the knight looked at the, the, his lady love, it would renew his strength. So Gawain's lady love is Mary, the mother of God, and he has her picture right there on the inside of his shield, so he can always look at it. And the fifth set of fives, which I heard the knight followed, included friendship and fraternity with fellow men, purity and politeness, that impressed at all times and pity, which surpassed all pointedness. So the final five is another series of five, five virtues, friendship and fraternity. And again, the original Middle English terms mean uh, the, the distinction there would be uh, friendship among peers and uh, fraternity with people who are below your station. So how you treat people who are your equals, how you treat people who are beneath you, right? And then purity and politeness. Purity is a spiritual virtue. Politeness is a social one. So you have to be pure, but you also have to be polite. And and pity, uh, which is, and again, in the original it's kind of a pun on pity and piety, Pity is having uh, having pity on people. Piety is being being pious, being virtuous. So these are the the, the five virtues, and we'll see, particularly that that image, that idea of purity and politeness, and how those may come to be in conflict for Gawain. Um. All right, so we get he goes off on another. Uh, journey, he goes through North Wales, uh, he sees all of these uh, around line 720, uh, uh, you know, he says, I can't tell you a tenth of what, what actually happened to him. He fought snakes and wolves and wood woes and bulls and bears and wild boars and giants. Uh, and he says, all that was bad, but the winter was worse. You know, nature was, uh, w- was hard to deal with. And he, he's looking for the Green Chapel, but nobody knows where it is. He can't find it. And it's, it's come to be Christmas Eve, and he still can't find it. So it's a year from when the, the feast at Camelot happened and when the Green Knight came. And Gawain has a prayer around line 755. It says, Father, hear me, and Lady Mary, our mother most mild, let me happen on some house where mass might be heard and matins in the morning. Merely I ask, and here I utter my pater ave and creed. So he's saying, you know, tomorrow is Christmas. This is the the great feast day of, 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 of the Christian year. Just let me find some place where there's there's a chapel where I could say the, the, the Christ Mass, the Christmas, um, so that I can give proper worship. And no sooner does he say that, and this is uh, next stanza. No sooner had he signed himself three times than he became aware in those woods of high walls in a moat, on a mound, bordered by the boughs of thick-trunked timber, which trimmed the water. The most commanding castle a knight ever kept. It was like oh. Dear God, please let me find a a place to worship. And no sooner does he say that, Oh, hey, I didn't notice that castle there before. But there it is. It it emerges almost magically when he needs it. Um, And it's uh, here again, we get one of these elaborate descriptions that the poem goes into. Uh, Look around line uh, 794. The knight had not seen a more stunning structure. Further in, his eye was drawn to a hall attended architecturally by many tall towers with a series of spires spiking the air, all crowned by carvings exquisitely cut, uncountable chimneys the color of chalk spurted from the roof and sparkled in the sun. So perfect was the vi- that vision of, p- of painted pinnacles clustered within the castle's enclosure it appeared that the palace was cut from paper so it's it's almost you know too too delicate and intricate to be real uh that's that's the kind of place he's in it's, it's again this this delight the poem takes in in uh beautifully intricately crafted things of course the poem is itself a beautifully intricately crafted thing um and So he asks, the the man comes out and says, will you bear a message to the owner of the hall and ask him for shelter? And they they let him come in. And when he meets his host, this is around line uh, 835, his host says, behave in my house as your heart pleases. To whatever you want, you are welcome. Do what you will. So that's an open invitation, and it takes on, as we will see, a lot of interesting resonance when we get into the third part of the poem. And look at the description of the the host. We don't get his name. We actually don't get his name until near the very end of the poem. Um, The great one who governed that grand estate, powerful and large in the prime of his life, with a bushy beard as red as a beaver's, steady in his stance, solid a build, with a fiery face, but with fine con- uh, conversation, a man quite capable, it occurred to Gawain, of keeping such a castle and containing his knights. So this is a, a, a formidable person, right? He's, 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 and he's, you know, big. Uh, he's also laughs a lot if you'll notice he's always laughing almost everything that that happens uh he's very jovial um and so they, you know, Gawain comes in and he takes his uh, uh, his armor off and, and gets into his clothes. And they have a, a dinner for him. Um, you know, his wonderful meal of double helpings, and it's it's uh, uh, he thinks it's great. And they say, "Oh, this is this is nothing. We'll give you a real feast later. This is just uh, uh, you know an appetizer." Uh, so this is a really abundant place, right? It's got a, this jovial lord. It's got all of this food. Um, it, it's a, a wonderful place in every sense of that word that he's found. And we also meet the lady of the castle. Look around line nine forty-three. She was fairest among them. Her face, her flesh, her complexion, her quality, her bearing, her body. More glorious than Guinevere, or so Gawain thought. "'And in the chancel of the church they exchanged courtesies. "'She was hand-in-hand with a lady to her left, "'someone altered by age, an ancient dame, "'well-respected, it seemed, by the servants at her side.'" So here's this beautiful woman who's even more beautiful than Guinevere. And, of course, in the tradition of King Arthur, Guinevere is the most beautiful woman in the world, So to say she's more beautiful than Guinevere is is an astonishing statement. And notice the way it kind of establishes how gorgeous she is is by standing her right next to this really old, ugly woman. It describes her, you know, the ladies were not the least bit alike. One was young, one withered by years. The body of the beauty seemed to bloom with blood. The cheeks of the crone were waddled and slack. One was clothed in a kerchief clustered with pearls, which shone like snow, snow on the slopes of her upper breast and bright bare throat. The other was noosed and knotted at the neck, her chin enveloped in chalk-white veils, her forehead fully enfolded in silk with detailed designs at the edge, edges and hems. Nothing bare except for the black of her brows and the eyes and nose and naked lips, which were chapped and bleared and a sorrowful sight. A grand old mother, a matriarch, she might be hailed. Her trunk was squat. And squ- was square and squat, her buttocks bulged and swelled. Most men would sooner squint at her, whose hand she held. So you know, the, she looks this. The lady of the castle looks even more beautiful, being next to this old crone. And notice that the the host here is is in some ways like Arthur was at the feast around line uh, 981. Frequently, the Lord would leap to his feet, insisting that mirth and merriment be made. Hauling off his hood, he hoisted it on a spear—a prize he promised to the person providing most comfort and cheer at Christmas time. So he 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 can't stay in his seat. You know, he keeps jumping up. He comes. Oh, let's have a game. I'll you know I'll give you the the you know this prize. Whoever is the most cheerful at Christmas. Um, so he's. Actually, kind of similar to uh, King Arthur at the beginning of the poem. I notice too that that uh, that uh, withered old crone uh, around line one thousand and one says the ancient elder sat highest at the table with the Lord. I believe in the chair to her left, the sweeter one and Gawain took seats in the center and were first at the feast to dine. So we get the setup. The old woman has the the seat of highest honor, but that means that uh, Gawain gets to sit right next to this beautiful woman, and they hit it off quite well. Line 1010, Gawain and the beautiful woman found such comfort and closeness in each other's company through warm exchanges of whispered words and refined convention, free from foulness, that their pleasure surpassed all princely sports by far. So there's this very kind of refined... And, and Gowan has this reputation as being a real ladies' man. Uh, if, if you look back uh, around 915, uh, the the... the people in the castle say watch now we'll witness his graceful ways hear the faultless praising of flawless speech if we listen we will learn the merits of language since we have in our hall a man of high honor ours is a generous and giving God to grant that we welcome Gawain as our guest um, and again he's uh, Flawless speech, graceful ways. Uh, this this whole idea of courtesy or politeness, and Gawain is the best at that. And we see that here with his his uh, uh, dinner with the lady of the of the castle. They they he does very well there. Now, while Gawain is having a, a grand old time here, he says that he has to leave. Uh, he says, "In three short days, my destiny is due." This is around line. Uh, uh, 1068. Um, then, laughing out loud, again, he's laughing. The the host laughs a lot. He says, relax. I'll direct you to your rendezvous when the time is right. You'll get uh, uh, to the Green Chapel. Uh, so, give up your grieving. You can bask in your bed, bide your time, save your fond farewells to the first of the year, and still meet him by mid-morning as you as to do as you may So stay A guide will greet you there At dawn on New Year's Day The place you need is near Two miles at most away So he's saying Oh, the Green Chapel That's just a couple of miles down the road You can stay here until New Year's You know, you can wait the next three days And just stay here And, you know, it'll, it'll just be a, a you know, it's, it's a quick commute to the Green Chapel um, And he invites him to relax, he says. You relax as you like. Lie in your bed uh, until mass tomorrow. Then go to your meal, where my wife will be waiting. He says. You you stay. You sleep in. Uh, have have breakfast uh, here, and he says I'm going to be doing something else. Eleven hundred. He says uh, at dawn I'll rise and ride to hunt with horse and hound. Um, he says. Furthermore, said the master. "'Let's make a pact. Here's a wager. What I win in the woods will be yours, and what you gain while I'm gone you will give to me. Young sir, let's swap and strike a bond. Let a bargain be a bargain, for worse or for better.' "'By God,' said Gawain, "'I agree to the terms, and I find it pleasing that you favor such fun.' So here's. Notice this is another kind of exchange game, like the the the, the Green Knight's beheading game, and it's actually it's it's kind of a playful way for the host to give gifts to Sir Gawain. Because he's going to go out, the host is going to go out and hunt. He says, "Whatever I win in the hunt, I'm going to give to you, and whatever you get here, you can give to me." Well, what Gowan's not going to be hunting or doing? He's going to be lounging around. He won't have anything to give, and so he's going to be getting something for nothing, which is kind of a gift, right? And uh, Gawain is very touched by that. So, well, that, that's that's a wonderful and fun way to to do that. So he's all for that. Um, now. When you're looking at the next part of the poem, we'll see how this game plays out. And like the beheading game, you'll see that there's a kind of unexpected complications in how this game works. Uh, in part three of the poem, it's set up, it's a three days that Gawain is waiting here in the castle before he goes to the Green Chapel. And so we have these scenes of Gawain in the castle are juxtaposed with the host out at his hunt each day. And think about how those scenes are juxtaposed. What's going on? What's what's similar or different about what's going on in both those parts of the story? And we'll you'll see that Gawain is being tested in a lot of ways. What what's the nature of the test and how does he how does he respond to it? Um pay attention to that think about what what's at stake for the way that Gawain responds to events in the in the castle now in the fourth section we get the confrontation with the green knight and a couple of things to think about there first of all think about how that confrontation is related to what has happened in those three previous days when Gawain was staying at the castle. There's a very explicit way in which what happens with Gawain and the Green Knight is related to what happened to Gawain while he was staying in the castle. Uh, think about that relationship and what it what it tells us about, about Gawain and his character. Um, finally, at the very end of the poem, you know, Gawain, I can... You know, and this is, will be a bit of a spoiler, but Gawain doesn't get killed. Uh, think about his reaction at the end. How does he feel? Is he is he upbeat? Is he sad? What's his What's his emotional state at the end of the poem, and why? And how do other people respond to him? Uh, you'll be thinking about that for next time. Um, all right, I will end it there. Uh, As always, if you have questions, my email is drmarkwomack at gmail.com. Please, if you have questions, let me know. Uh, I thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.